You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. For space lovers, April 24th, 1990, was just about the most exciting day since the moon landing. And liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. 77 years earlier, three of the very first rocket scientists had published a paper about the possibility of using their new technology to launch things into outer space. And one of their use cases was the telescope. In 1946, astronomer and physicist Lyman Spitzer expanded on the idea. He noted a couple of hard limits on terrestrial telescopes, mainly air. Earth's atmosphere absorbs much of the infrared and ultraviolet light that passes through it, and the unevenness and movement of that atmosphere distorts visible light. That's kind of nice for campers, since it causes stars to twinkle, but it also makes it so that stars that are near to one another blur together and keeps large telescopes from getting crisper images. If you could deploy a telescope outside the atmosphere, however, you could get far more detail, far crisper images, and you could get them in ultraviolet and infrared light. Spitzer championed the idea of a space telescope for the rest of his life. In 1965, he was put in charge of a committee for coming up with a design. In 1959, Nancy Grace Roman proposed that a space-based telescope could be used to find planets orbiting distant stars. She became chief astronomer for NASA in 1961 and continued to push for the development of a large space telescope for decades. Beginning in 1970, NASA started lobbying for funding from Congress to build it, but Congress went the other way. Throughout the 70s, they repeatedly slashed NASA's budget, and the telescope project was first on the chopping block. In 1977, rather than accept a paltry sop of $5 million for the project, Noel Hinners decided to zero out its budget altogether, in hopes that the scientific community would be so disturbed that they would come to NASA's defense. And it worked. Astronomers around the country organized letter-writing campaigns, even went to visit members of Congress in person. The National Academy of Sciences wrote a report advocating for a space-based telescope and submitted it into the congressional record. Congress, finally, got the message and approved funding. It was 50% less than NASA had budgeted, but they'd figure out a way to make it work. The Large Space Telescope Project was officially stamped and given a tentative launch date of 1983. The most impressive and challenging part of the telescope would be its main mirror, which was to be nearly 8 feet in diameter. In 1979, the blank flat glass was built by Corning and delivered to Perkin Elmer for grinding and polishing. But grinding and polishing a piece of glass that large to the very precise measurements necessary proved extremely difficult. The operation was so sensitive that the crew could only work at night. 
You see, the nearest road to the facility was two miles away, but a single car driving down it created too much vibration for the polishing to continue. The launch date slipped back and back and back. The telescope, now named Hubble, was finally completed and ready for launch in 1986. Seven, six, we have main engine start, four, three, two, one, and liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. But then disaster struck. So the 25th Space Shuttle mission is now on the way after more delays than NASA cares to count. This morning, it looked as though they were not going to be able to get off. One minute, 15 seconds. Velocity, 2,900 feet per second. Altitude, 9 nautical miles. Downrange distance, 7 nautical miles. On January 28, 1986, the Challenger space shuttle exploded in midair just 73 seconds after liftoff, killing all seven crew members after two rubber O-rings failed due to the cold weather. Looks like a couple of the uh, solid rocket boosters uh, blew away from the side of the shuttle in an explosion. The space program was grounded for two and a half years. Hubble would have to wait. Finally, on April 24, 1990, the Space Shuttle Discovery launched with Hubble in its hold. Once it was deployed, astronomers, amateur and professional alike, sat back and waited for the first clear pictures to be taken of deep space. They were about to be disappointed. When Hubble relayed its first images, the problem was immediately evident. Yeah, it was better than what you could see from Earth, but just barely. The light from stars bled out around them, creating halos that extended 10 times the size they should have been. The Hubble Space Telescope, the culmination of 30 years of hard work, was out of focus. The problem, NASA soon determined, was that nearly 8-foot-tall mirror. It had been polished to the wrong shape, essentially giving Hubble astigmatism. The outer edge of the mirror was flatter than it should have been. When Perkin Elmer was in the final stage of figuring the mirror, they'd tested the shape against a specially built, extraordinarily sensitive instrument called a null corrector. And when they set up the null corrector, they had neglected to take the protective caps off of it. And that had given them a very minutely, yet critically, incorrect measurement. In the end, the problem was fixed by giving Hubble what essentially amounted to a pair of corrective glasses. A pair of corrective glasses that cost $700 million. All to correct the shape of the main mirror, which had been off by one four hundred and fiftieth of a millimeter. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. An hour and a half on the neglected women of science. An hour 45 on demonic nuns. Two and a half hours on altruism and AIDS conspiracies. And nearly three and a half hours trying to button up the story of the fool killer. It makes me long for simpler times, my friends, and smaller stories. 
Oh, I love the smaller stories. Because a lot of the time, the smaller stories are the ones that really matter. As you'll soon see. Today's episode, it's the little things. Since we're already here, let's stay in outer space for a while. That's not very comfortable, is it? Because in space, little things really matter, which is due to a delicious paradox. Space is almost inconceivably extreme in a whole lot of respects. The background temperature in space is about negative 455 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 270 Celsius. But if a solid object gets into direct sunlight while orbiting the Earth, that temperature jumps to about 250 Fahrenheit, 120 Celsius, in a matter of minutes. Or take the distance between Earth and Mars. When the two are closest to one another, they're still a staggering 34 million miles apart. And that is where the paradox comes in. Because when you're trying to make a straight shot to a thing that's 34 million miles away, even the slightest, most minute inaccuracy could end up making you miss. Which brings us to our second little thing in space story, the Mars Climate Orbiter. If you're old enough to have been cognizant in 1999, you probably remember the Mars Climate Orbiter. It's possible you remember it because you were excited about the prospect of humanity putting a weather satellite in orbit around Mars. T-minus 20 seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. We have ignition and we have liftoff of NASA's Mars Climate Orbiter as we continue to explore the mysteries of the red planet. But more likely, you remember it because humanity failed. Space Agency says tonight that a multi-million dollar spacecraft sent to explore the atmosphere of a planet Mars has been destroyed. It's a setback to years of work already done in the vastness of space all it takes is one navigation error. In this case, NASA was off by 60 miles. The Mars Climate Orbiter's trip from Earth to Mars took 286 days, most of them uneventful, from December 11, 1998 to September 23, 1999, when the craft was supposed to be inserted into Martian orbit right on schedule. Or actually, a, a tiny bit ahead of schedule, but we'll get back to that. The plan had been that the orbiter would approach Mars at a distance of 140 miles. As it got nearby, it would fire its rockets, and together with the planet's gravity, it would begin to spin around in a large elliptical orbit, which, after a few rotations, would put it securely above our red cousin. The day before the insertion maneuver, NASA noticed something was off. It looked like the orbiter might be approaching far closer than they'd expected, maybe as near as 93 miles from the surface. That was a little worrisome, and the crew debated whether or not to try to program in a correction beforehand, but they had so little time left to go and their understanding of the probe's position was imprecise enough that they decided to just let it go. It shouldn't have really mattered anyway. As long as it didn't get closer than 53 miles to Mars, it would be fine. Plenty of room for error, really. Just not enough. On the morning of September 23rd, calculations showed that the orbiter would begin its approach just after 9 a.m. Coordinated Universal Time, which is essentially Greenwich Mean. 
At 9.05 and 41 seconds, it would pass behind Mars and NASA would lose radio contact for 23 minutes until it came back around the other side. But alarmingly, ground control lost contact early. Just a little bit, just 49 seconds, so maybe the calculations were wrong, or there was a bug in the comms, or who knows, everything could still turn out fine. They just had to wait an agonizing 23 minutes to find out. 23 minutes came and went, and another 23, and all the 23 minutes in all the universe. The Mars Climate Orbiter was never heard from again. Whether it burnt up in the Martian atmosphere or bounced hard off of it and into deep space is impossible to know. But what we do know, what NASA soon found out, was why. The Mars Climate Orbiter was small, and it was cheap. I don't mean that in a chintzy way. I mean that it was built to be a relatively compact and inexpensive mission, the kind of thing 90s NASA was used to. One of the cost-saving features of the MCO was that it only had one solar panel, which, again, was fine. It would still get all the power it needed. But the single solar panel did introduce a small complication. Because it made the orbiter asymmetrical, the orbiter would require a little more work to keep it on course during its interplanetary journey. The solar pressure pushing against the single panel would naturally cause the orbiter to yaw a bit. So, every once in a while, the orbiter would do a little maneuver, called an angular momentum desaturation, which corrected for that push. Each of these AMDs was tiny, just a little blip. It did a whole bunch of them. Members of the ground crew noticed midway through the journey that it was performing a lot more AMDs than planned, in fact, but that wasn't the problem either. Each time the orbiter fired its thrusters to make the AMD, it sent data back to NASA, informing their computers of how long the thrusters had fired and how much thrust they'd used. That wasn't a problem either. The problem was that the computer sending the message from the orbiter and the computer listening to the message at ground control were misunderstanding each other. The orbiter was calculating in metric units, newtons per second, but the ground computer thought it was talking in American imperial units, pounds per second. That wouldn't necessarily be a problem either, actually. But in addition to all these little correction maneuvers, ground control also executed four larger course corrections over the 286 days the orbiter was on its way. Each of those course corrections had to account for the exact current angle, position, and velocity of the craft, which meant relying on the data from the angular momentum desaturation maneuvers, which, unbeknownst to them, was off by a factor of 4.45. Each one of these thrusts was small enough that the mistake went unnoticed, but altogether, they created a mistake that turned the Mars Climate Orbiter into a late-night punchline. Which doesn't seem fair. Who among us, after all, hasn't accidentally added a tablespoon of salt when the recipe called for a teaspoon? The difference, I guess, being that when I screw up on a sponge cake, it doesn't cost the American taxpayers half a billion dollars.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Before we return to Earth, I have one more for you up here. The Mars Climate Orbiter may be the most infamous space small thing, but my favorite space small thing is a little less well-known. It begins with yet another space launch. Two of them, actually. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Pioneer 10 and 11 were the world's first spacecraft to be sent out on a path eventually taking them out of the solar system. Pioneer 10 was the first man-made object to reach Jupiter, and Pioneer 11 was the first to reach Saturn. Most of the images you have seen and the images you can pull in your heads of those planets come from the pioneers. In addition to those images, they also mapped the magnetic fields, composition, temperatures, and radiation of those planets, measured the solar winds and cosmic rays from the sun, recorded the impacts of meteoroids. And they each carried plaques, which included images of a naked man and woman, along with a rudimentary star chart, so that if aliens ever encounter them, they'll know where to find both us and our jiggly bits. And all of that went fine, with the possible exception of the plaques, but we'll find out whether that was a mistake when the aliens arrive knowing exactly where to kick us. Pioneer 10 launched on March 3rd, 1972, and encountered Jupiter a year and a half later on November 6, 1973. 
On its way, it became the first mission to detect helium atoms in open space, the first to enter the asteroid belt, and the first to find aluminum and sodium ions in the solar wind. It arrived at Jupiter to take not just the famous images of the planet, but of several of its moons, and then it was back on its way out to deep space. On June 13, 1983, it crossed the orbit of Neptune, becoming the first human artifact to ever travel outside the range of the major planets. Pioneer 11 was no slouch either. It launched on April 6, 1973 and arrived at Jupiter on November 3, 1974. It made flybys of Callisto, Ganymede, Io, Europa, Amalthea, before continuing on to Saturn, where it took images of the planet, its moons, and rings close up. It passed Neptune's orbit on February 25, 1990, and continued on towards the edge of the solar system and beyond. Again, everything according to plan. But even after Pioneer 10 and 11's main jobs were completed, they continued sending signals back to Earth, and that is where things got weird. The main little thing issue with Pioneers 10 and 11 wasn't to do with the enormity of space or the extremity of space, it was the simplicity of space. It's mostly empty, after all, so the number of forces working upon the probes was small. The solar winds from the sun, gravity from the sun and nearby planets, friction from the very small amount of stuff present in the near vacuum of space. And their effects were pretty well understood. At least, we thought so. Beginning in 1980, scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who were still tracking the Pioneer probes, noticed a discrepancy. Because they thought they knew all the factors at play on the spacecrafts, they had a good idea of where they should be, what direction they should be moving in, and how fast they should be traveling. But when they actually pinged Pioneers 10 and 11, their predictions were wrong. The probes were in the wrong positions, they were going in the wrong directions, and they were moving slightly slower than they ought to have been. In the grand scheme of things, the discrepancy was tiny. Each year, the probes were about 400 kilometers short of where they were estimated to be. On the scale of the solar system, that is barely noticeable. But it compounded, year after year, until the shortage was about the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Still. On the scale of the solar system, that is a blip. It meant that the probes were traveling just the teensiest bit slower than they should have been. And I mean the teensiest bit. The pioneers were traveling at roughly 12.307 kilometers a second, which is approximately 82,000 miles per hour. That was slower than expected by about 9 10 millionths of a meter per second. That's a zero with ten zeros after the decimal point, and then a nine. Obviously, that tiny little anomaly was adding up over time, but that wasn't the problem. Unlike the Mars Climate Orbiter, Pioneers 10 and 11 had nowhere to be, so it didn't matter logistically when they got there. What mattered was that this tiny little bit of deceleration was unexplained. It had to have a cause, and no one could figure out what that cause could be. But there were a lot of theories. And I want to make sure you understand, before I get into them, that we aren't dealing with crackpots here. 
These aren't the rambling conjectures of lunatics or amateurs. These are the theories proposed by top scientists, people at NASA, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and prestigious universities around the world. Not all of the theories were totally wild. Like any good scientists, people looking at what became known as the Pioneer Anomaly started off with the simple stuff. Maybe the issue wasn't with the spacecrafts at all, but with how we were measuring them. But that didn't add up because multiple different types of measurement gave the same results. And anyway, there were two probes, and they were both showing the same issue. For a few years, it seemed feasible that the probes were leaking propellant from their thruster systems. But if that were the problem, the deceleration should have decreased over time as they ran out of juice. And it didn't. In 1994, a team of scientists, led by Michael Martin Nieto and Slava Turchev, began to seriously consider and analyze the problem. In 1998, they published in Physical Review Letters. They made their data public. They had some hints of what might be happening, but couldn't rule out a whole galaxy of possibilities. And when the physics community saw that galaxy of possibilities, they started investigating them too. Maybe the probes were experiencing more drag than anticipated, which would mean that the interplanetary medium, the stuff that makes the near vacuum of space only near, was denser than we thought. Perhaps there was a new unknown planet out past Neptune, the gravity of which was affecting the pioneers. Or else there were more or larger asteroids in the Kuiper belt than we knew. Or, even more tantalizing, what if there was a mass of dark matter, that mysterious unknown stuff that hypothetically makes up 85% of the matter in the universe, hanging out in the furthest reaches of the solar system? Any one of those things would have been big news, but they all had the same issue. The planets out towards the outer rim, Neptune and Uranus, were not experiencing the same deceleration as the probes. They followed the rules that everyone thought should predict the probes. Hell, they were part of how those rules were discovered. And according to Newtonian physics, gravity is universal. Every particle attracts every other particle in the universe based on their masses and on their distances from one another. That didn't rule out the possibility of a secret xenoplanet or a clump of dark matter, though. It just meant that maybe Newtonian physics, the law of gravity, was wrong. Modified Newtonian Dynamics, or MOND, is a hypothesis proposed by Israeli physicist Mordechai Milgram in 1982, totally independent from the Pioneer Anomaly. A couple of months back, in our episode Cassandra's, we talked about Vera Rubin and how she discovered that the spinning movement of galaxies defied expectations based on Newton's laws. This led most scientists to the conclusion that there was a huge amount of what's called missing mass, i.e. dark matter. But Milgram's hypothesis cut the other way. Maybe the problem with how galaxies spin isn't about their mass, but about our expectations. Maybe universal gravitation isn't universal after all. Maybe Newton's laws work fine here on Earth and even in the solar system properly. But when you get out a little further to environments that are slower, more static, the laws break down. And maybe the pioneer anomaly was proof of that. 
Maybe. Probably not, but if you're thinking we've gone off the deep end here, just you wait, because there are a lot stranger explanations than gravity is wrong. Like, time is wrong. Since Einstein, we've understood that time is relative. It dilates the faster you travel, which is still among the most mind-boggling discoveries in human history, but we don't have time for that now. In 2004, Antonio F. Renata at the University of Madrid proposed that the expansion of the universe wasn't just creating more space, but accelerating time itself, so that when you pinged the far-off space probes, that ping was traveling through an unexpected sort of time bubble. The probes were exactly where they should be, but in a different time than we expected. Scoff all you want, the math worked, mostly. However, it could have been simpler than that. Maybe the problem had to do with the expansion of the universe itself, rather than its possible effects on time. We've known that the universe is expanding since Edwin Hubble confirmed the theory in 1929, which led directly to the Big Bang Theory. Things around the universe are moving away from another at an enormous rate of speed, with space seeming to form or stretch between them. But this is only supposed to happen in the empty bits, between things that aren't bound to one another by gravity. So Earth isn't getting farther away from the Sun, the Sun isn't getting farther away from the center of the Milky Way, and the Milky Way isn't getting farther from the local group, nearby galaxies that are clustered together. In theory, universal expansion is only supposed to be happening on larger scales than that. But maybe that's not true. Maybe there is some slight expansion happening on much smaller scales, like that 9 10 millionths of a meter per second the Pioneer probes were experiencing. Or maybe the problem was quantum. Maybe the deceleration of Pioneers 10 and 11 were proof of string theory. Or that there was an extra dimension between them and us. No, seriously, it's called brain cosmology. B-R-A-N-E, look it up. Whatever the case, it seemed like this tiny little discrepancy, a few hundred kilometers each year, on two little space probes who were well past retirement, called for a major revision to the laws of physics. But it didn't. In 2012, 34 years after the anomaly was first noticed, its cause was found. Slava Tertsev and a team out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory had spent the last eight years digging up all the data on the Pioneer mission they could. The probes had been drawn out with pen and paper, and their blueprints had to be tracked down. Their mission and flight data was all stored on obsolete magnetic tapes that were literally stuffed into cardboard boxes and shoved beneath some stairs at NASA. It was all an absolute tangle, but after several years of searching, digging, and sorting, Tershev's team was able to put together an accurate computer model of Pioneers 10 and 11, and then model the course of that model through the model solar system. What they found was far less exciting than a full rewrite of the law of gravity. Because the Pioneer probe's missions were to travel to the outer planets and beyond, they couldn't rely on solar power, like the Mars Climate Orbiter. Instead, they were given thermoelectric generators that converted heat into power. That heat was provided by a cache of radioactive plutonium-238 and a very tiny portion of that heat 
was bouncing off of the probe's dishes. Since every action has an equal and opposite reaction, that teensy bit of heat reflecting off the dishes was slowing the probes down. Newton's laws weren't the problem after all. They were the solution. We'll come down to Earth after this. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. You ever wake up in the morning with a list of things to do and a sense that you can't possibly work out how to do them? Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual, so when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or becoming a parent. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. That can mean learning coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, or any number of other critical things you might need. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash the constant. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. When it comes to hiring, you need to trust your gut. But what if you could give your gut some help? When you want to find top talent fast, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Let me tell you about a little pre-Christmas helper elf named Instant Match. Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search, according to U.S. Indeed data. Join over three million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit Indeed.com slash The Constant to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best feature on my phone is the ability to make it stop making sound. Well, aside from that one, because that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipe for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. 
Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you will too. Shopify makes selling simple so that you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash the constant to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash the constant. Back on solid ground. One of the best parts of little thing stories is that they can be like riddles, like the Pioneer Anomaly. It had a problem, parameters, and a bunch of solutions that had to fit the shape of the whole. The trouble with the Pioneer Anomaly as riddle is that it required 30 years and the work of dozens of scientists to solve. A great riddle should be just outside the immediate abilities of a single person. The solution has to live in a Goldilocks zone between obvious and impossible. Like this one. Play along with me. The place is Minneapolis, Minnesota. The time, December 4th, 2017. The problem, car accidents. About 1,200 of them in just over 24 hours. Most of them are easy to explain. There was a big blizzard, the first major snowfall of the year. 10 inches of the stuff, accompanied by strong, horizontal winds. Nearly half of the accidents recorded were spin-outs, vehicles sliding across intersections, into opposing lanes, or off the sides of the road. And plenty of the crashes were due to bad visibility or being unable to brake in time. But even once the snow stopped and the roads were cleared, there were still a higher number of accidents than usual. Can you guess why? Let me give you a hint. The anomalous accidents occurred at larger intersections. Intersections with traffic lights which had been recently replaced to save energy. Got it? All right, well, how about this? The replacement lights were LEDs. LEDs are a great improvement over the old incandescent bulbs. They last a whole lot longer, so not only do you have to send out people to replace them less frequently, but with fewer burnt-out bulbs comes fewer opportunities for the chaos of people missing signals. Usually. You there yet? No shame, we're about to land on it. The main benefit of LEDs over incandescent bulbs is energy efficiency. The amount of electricity needed to power the newfangled lights is less than a quarter of the old guys. Yet they're still just as bright. That's because incandescents waste a bunch of power, which is converted into heat, which had the side effect of melting snow off of the traffic lights during and after big windy snowstorms until they were replaced with cool, efficient, long-lasting, not to mention snow-covered LEDs. 
Speaking of unintended consequences, the island of Canna in the Hebrides west of Scotland is home to just 15 people, a few rare species of birds and mice, a bunch of Bronze Age ruins, and, up until 2005, a very unpleasant horde of rats. Like, think Brooklyn, but worse. The brown rat first immigrated to Canna thanks to a shipwreck in the early 20th century, and facing a total lack of natural predators and an abundance of easy foodstuff, their population quickly exploded. Estimates in the early 2000s put their numbers at about 10,000, concentrated on a thin island just four and a half miles long. Which is gross. I don't like thinking about that very much, thank you, and I'll bet the people of Canna didn't either. But the rats of Canna weren't just a problem for them. They threatened those aforementioned bird and mice species. The Canna mouse, a small wood mouse unique to the island, was virtually overrun by the rats, which feasted daily on the eggs of the Manx shearwater. In 1972, there were about 3,000 of the seabirds on Canna. By 2004, they were nearly extinct. So the decision was made to kill them. Kill them all! The National Trust of Scotland brought in a New Zealand-based exterminator company called Wildlife Management International to eliminate every last rat from Canna. And they succeeded. After removing as many of the endangered mice as they could and putting them temporarily in a Scottish zoo, Wildlife Management International laid special poisoned wax blocks around the island, every 50 meters in every direction. The whole operation ran up a bill of 600,000 pounds. But it was worth it. By 2008, the island of Canna was officially rat-free. And then came the rabbits. Apparently, in addition to all the bird eggs, the rats had been supping on baby bunnies. And with them gone, the rabbits began to multiply like... Well, like rabbits, isn't it? In 2004, there were 10,000 rats. In 2008, there were zero rats. In 2012, there were zero rats and an estimated 15,000 rabbits. The people of Canna began eating rabbit not just for every meal, but every course. In 2010, The Guardian reported that the island's restaurant featured rabbit liver pate for the appetizer with rabbit pie for the main. Which, if you like rabbit, might sound okay, but there wasn't much to serve with the rabbit because they were eating all the crops. Not to mention that all of those aforementioned Bronze Age artifacts, the bunnies were burrowing underneath them, making them unstable. At one point, they caused a landslide that blocked the island's main road. So, in October of 2013, a decision was made. To kill them. Kill them all. No, wait. Not all of them. They'd learned their lesson this time. The National Trust knew that the rabbits were an important part of the diet of local sea eagles, so they couldn't poison the varmints without endangering the birds, and they couldn't cull the entire population without starving them. Instead, evergreen rabbit control was brought in to eliminate 75% of Canis rabbits, give or take. Instead of an elegant, island-wide grid system of wax and poison, evergreen threw the kitchen sink at the problem. They built rabbit fences, deployed cages and drop boxes, they trained dogs to hunt rabbits, they trained ferrets to hunt rabbits, and they hunted themselves with rifles and shotguns. The six-man crew of Evergreen Rabbit Control worked for three straight months. They killed dozens of rabbits a day until they hit their target. 
but it wasn't quite as costly as the rat cull had been, because Evergreen iced up every rabbit they could and sold them as meat to France. While we're here in Scotland, we should talk about the birthday booty call heard round the world. Alexander III was the best king Scotland had known since... Mm, ever? It's not like the competition was especially thick. When he ascended to the throne in 1249 at just six years old, the history of the Scottish crown was pretty inauspicious. He came from the house of Dunkeld which had begun with King Duncan I, as in the one Macbeth assassinates in Shakespeare's play. That isn't what actually happened, but the truth of the matter wasn't much better, and Macbeth followed him. Macbeth also wasn't as terrible a king as old Billy Shakes would have you believe, but he wasn't great either, and he fell in battle to the British, only to be replaced by his stepson, Lulok, who only reigned for three months, but still managed to get two epithets in his time. Lulok the Unfortunate and Lulok the Foolish, so that tells you what you need to know about him. Anyway, he was murdered in 1058 by Duncan's son Malcolm. After Malcolm's death in 1093, Scotland was ruled by a long succession of his progeny, most of whom murdered and were murdered by one another. Donald III, Malcolm's grandson, seized power in a bloody coup, but only managed to rule for a couple of months before Malcolm's son, Duncan II, cooed back. Then somebody, possibly Donald, killed Duncan, and Donald reascended for a couple of years before he was either murdered, exiled, or both. At which point Duncan's half-brother Edgar became king and immediately started losing land, ceding most of the Hebrides, including the eventually rat and rabbit-stuffed island of Canna, to Norway. He never married and never had any children, so his brother stepped up and became King Alexander I. He did all right, but like Edgar, failed at the most important duty of kingship, having heirs. So when he died, a civil war broke out between his brother, David, and his one bastard son, Malcolm, which lasted 10 years until David eventually came out on top. David managed to produce one legitimate heir, Henry the Earl of Northumberland, but Henry died a year before David. So the crown passed to his 11-year-old grandson, Malcolm IV, who himself died not long after he came to maturity, which made William the Rough, very cool name, Malcolm's brother, the new king of Scotland. The king of England at the time was Henry II, whose sons revolted against him in 1173. William the Rough allied with them in hopes that he could expand his borders into English lands, and at the Battle of Alnwick, personally charged the English army on horseback. He was knocked off, captured, and imprisoned. Instead of expanding his kingdom, he lost the whole thing. While he was in jail in Normandy, Henry II took Scotland hostage. He eventually returned the country to William, and William to the country, but on humiliating terms that caused a lot of Scottish nobles to revolt. William the Rough was in for a rough time. <laughs> Fuck. He spent the rest of his long rule a lapdog to the English and mistrusted by his own people. But at least he secured an heir, Alexander II. He spent most of his time trying to get the Hebrides back, but died from a fever while on his way to convince Ewan, the King of the Isles, very cool title, to break from Norway. Which brings us 
Finally, to Alexander III. He was only seven years old when Alex Jr. died and was married off to the English King Henry III's daughter, Margaret, when they were both 11. That's cute. This ensured some degree of peace between the countries, but it came with a catch. When Alexander was 16, Henry tried to get him to recognize him as the true ruler of Scotland. The young Alexander refused, but the push and pull between pro and anti-English forces in Scotland led to him being kidnapped two years later. After his release, Alexander resumed the work begun by his father to reclaim the Hebrides from Norway. He sailed an army to the Isle of Arran, where he began negotiations with the Norwegian king Hakon. His army wasn't powerful enough to defeat Hakon's, so he stalled the negotiations until the seasonal storms picked up in October. The two armies clashed to a draw, but the weather was too terrible for the Norwegians to continue, and they retreated, returning Canna and the rest of the islands to Scotland. On the way back to Norway, King Hakon fell sick and died, which quickly led to Scotland gaining control of the Isle of Man as well. Everything was coming up Alexander, but there were dark times ahead. Queen Margaret grew sick and died in 1275. She and Alexander had borne three children, a daughter also named Margaret, a son also named Alexander, and a third child called David, short straw for David, and he died at just nine years old in 1281. Margaret, who had been married off to the new king of Norway in order to de-escalate the unpleasantness, passed during childbirth two years later. Then the heir apparent, Prince Alexander, followed his other siblings. That left Margaret, daughter of Margaret's daughter, who was also called Margaret, Alexander's only living heir. But she was female, which made her claim tenuous in medieval Scotland, and she was the child of the Norwegian king, which made it doubly tenuous. Not to mention, she was a baby. So Alexander III decided it would be wise to remarry and try to get a few more kids out while the getting was good. In October of 1285, the 44-year-old Scottish king married a 22-year-old French duchess named Yolanda of Drew. In addition to his reputation as a shrewd negotiator and fierce warrior, Alexander III was also known as a total coos hound. According to the Lannercost Chronicle, he fucked anything and everything, whenever and wherever he could. Or as the Chronicle slightly less bodily put it, he used never to forbear on account of season nor storm, nor for perils of flood or rocky cliffs, but would visit none too credibly, nuns or matrons, virgins or widows, as the fancy seized him, sometimes in disguise. But with a new and young bride at his side, he mostly settled down. On the night of March 19, 1286, he decided to leave a feast at Edinburgh Castle in spite of the hour and a huge bellowing storm so that he could meet up with Yolanda in Kingshorn because it was her birthday and he wanted to give her a good dicking to celebrate. Again, according to the Chronicle, the protracted feast having come to an end, he would neither be deterred by stress of weather nor yield to the persuasion of his nobles, but straightway hurried along the road to Queen's Ferry in order to visit his bride. When he arrived at the village near the crossing, the ferrymaster warned him of the danger and advised him to go back, but when Alexander asked him in return whether he was afraid to die with him, by no means, quoth he, it would be a great honor to share the fate of your father's son. Scotland and the toxic masculinity, boy howdy. Thus he arrived at the borough of Inverkeithing in profound darkness, accompanied by only three esquires. 
The manager of his salt pans, a married man of that town, recognizing him by his voice, called out, My lord, what are you doing here in such a storm and such darkness? Often I have tried to persuade you that your nocturnal rambles will bring no good. Stay with us and we will provide you with decent fare and all that you want till morning light. No need for that, said Alexander with a laugh, but provide me with a couple of bondmen to go afoot as guides to the way. And it came to pass that when they had proceeded two miles, one and all lost all knowledge of the way, owing to the darkness. Only the horses by natural instinct picked out the hard road. While they were thus separated from each other, the esquires took the right road, but the king at length fell from his horse and bade farewell to his kingdom in the sleep of Sisara. To again declass the chronicle a mite, Alexander fell off a cliff and died trying to get some birthday poontang. That left Margaret, child of Margaret, child of Margaret, then three years old, to rule Scotland. But she wasn't just a toddler, she was also in Norway. King Eric of Norway, Margaret's father, was excited at the prospect of taking control of all of Scotland, but that excitement was tempered when a bunch of Scotch nobles began getting rowdy and claiming that maybe they should be king. Eric decided that the situation was too dangerous to send his tiny daughter into. To secure her safety, Eric married off his three-year-old daughter to Edward of Carnarvon, the future King Edward II of England. In 1290, the Scots, English, and Norwegians had worked it all out. Margaret would be Queen of Scotland, Edward would be King of England, and Eric would remain King of Norway, and even though they were all one big happy family, hmm, each nation would be governed independently. So Margaret was put on a boat and sent to be coronated in Edinburgh. On the way, she grew sick. The expedition stopped off at Orkney, where her grandfather, King Hakon, had died after his defeat at her other grandfather, Alexander's hands. She died there, too, purportedly from seasickness. I know, I told you, everybody was really weird about seasickness. The House of Dunkeld was now fully exhausted, and no one knew who would be king next. Not to worry, said Robert de Bruce, Lord of Annandale. I'll take over. Unfortunately, John Balliol, Lord of Galloway, said the same thing. And so did John Hastings. And so did Floris IV, the Count of Holland, and Floris V, the other Count of Holland. John the Black, Nicholas de Sole, Patrick Gaithley. In total, 13 separate people came forward claiming themselves the new Kings of Scotland. The country was on the brink of war, and the high Scottish houses, in their desperation, turned to King Edward of England to settle the matter before the moors ran red. He decided that John should be king, but only in a sense. In exchange for brokering the truce, Edward basically tried to take control of the whole country. John was seen, correctly, as a figurehead, and the Scottish lords deposed him. Edward then invaded, and the Wars of Scottish Independence began, where William Wallace would earn the title Defender of Scotland, and Robert the Bruce, eventually King of Scots. Robert's grandson established the House of Stuart as the royal line of Scotland, all the way down through James VI, who became James I, King of England, Scotland, and Wales, in 1603, unifying the island of Britain and laying the groundwork for the United Kingdom to come. 
all because Alexander III wanted to celebrate Yolanda's birthday in their birthday suits. But would you believe that there was another birthday party that was potentially even more important to world history? I'd like to tell you about it, but it is nearly my birthday and nearly this show's, too. So in two weeks, I'm celebrating with a special episode. And then I will be back to tell you about it, along with a second slew of little things. Music provided by Epidemic Sound. This show is made possible by listeners like you who back us on Patreon. A very special thanks go out to Depot Togonu Bickersteth, Craig Richardson, Shannon Brock, and Steve Essich for your support. If you would like to join them and get ad-free early access to new episodes as well as bonus content, you can go to patreon.com slash theconstant to sign up. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where the Chicago Tribune made the most embarrassing little mistake in journalistic history when it infamously proclaimed Dewey defeats Truman in 1948. Hey, go vote, everybody. The election is today. Please vote in it. This has been The Constant. The Constant.